This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. We have a fish wrap for you this morning because yesterday was a quite momentous, or the day before, quite a momentous day in politics in this country. There are two pieces side by side on the front page of the New York Times. They're not the headlines exactly. They're the right-hand side of the page with a uh, vertical uh, uh, column for both of the stories side by side. Kansas decision to keep abortion buoys Democrats. Warning for the GOP, lopsided vote signals a danger of overreach post-Roe versus Wade. Next to it, this story. Backers of lies about election rise in GOP, their goal to oversee voting in key states. So, the story about the Kansas decision to uh, not change the state constitution and to keep abortion as a constitutional right, a state constitutional right in that state, has in fact changed the landscape for the midterm elections, I think. But the story next to it, backers of lies about election rise in GOP, their goal to oversee voting in key states means that, well, Democrats can win the popular vote, but Republicans with control of the state election apparatus, apparatus? in the various states, can control the elections because they can select presidential election electors, for example, regardless, and certify votes of who won and who lost, regardless of how the voters voted. Let's start with the Kansas decision, which is really interesting. And the way it's presented in the Times, I think, is really interesting as well. So let's read two sentences. A decisive vote to defend abortion rights in deeply conservative Kansas reverberated across the midterm campaign landscape on Wednesday, galvanizing Democrats and underscoring for Republicans the risks of overreaching on one of the most emotionally charged matters in American politics. Actually makes me think the Times writing is just exquisite. What a great lead. Okay, let's go on to the second paragraph. In a state where Republicans far outnumber Democrats, Kansans delivered a clear message in the first major vote testing the potency of abortion politics since the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade. Abortion opponents are going too far. The vote was really kind of lopsided. It was 59% to 41% to retain the state constitutional right to abortion. That right comes from a 2019 decision from the Kansas Supreme Court that says, as the Massachusetts uh, Supreme Judicial Court says, that abortion is a state constitutional right. So the federal decision, from the, that is the decision of the Supreme Court, did not outlaw abortion. What the Supreme Court said is that Roe versus Wade is overruled. There is no federal constitutional right, no right to privacy that protects a woman uh, and protects her right to make reproductive choice decisions. That's just not in the federal constitution, according to five of the justices. Six, if you count uh, Chief Justice Roberts's vote in favor of the decision, although he wrote a different opinion saying he would not overrule Roe versus Wade. So the federal constitution does not protect abortion. But state constitutions can, and Kansas's does. So what this vote was about was the anti-abortion forces 
coming together and saying, okay, what we'll do is amend the state constitution and we'll have a vote because that's what's required in order to change the state constitution. And they were very optimistic. I mean, it's a deeply conservative state. Trump carried uh, Kansas in 2016 by 20 something points and very close to that in, I'm sorry, in 2016 and did the same, came very close in 2020 as well. Uh, there is an independent streak to Kansas voting, but all that having been said, it's a deeply conservative, highly religious state. And the uh, evangelicals have a significant, uh, are a significant force in politics in that state. And yet they lost this vote by 18%. It's huge. It's huge. I think it, the, not, the victory was somewhat surprising, and the degree in, to which uh, Kansans came out and said, government, we don't want you deciding for us what our decisions should be make should be with regard to reproductive choice decisions. Kansan women can make their own and should have the right to make their own decisions. Not necessarily an easy decision by any choice. Reproductive choice decisions can be very, very difficult and heart-wrenching. But it's not for the government, for government bureaucrats and elected officials to decide. It's for women to decide. And we should have that right. Women should should have that right. And that's what the voters of Kansas said. A deeply conservative state, I think, demonstrating conservative values, which government, keep your hands off my body. You would think that conservatives would be in favor of the right to choose for the government to not impose itself. But no, that's not how it works in American politics. Hasn't worked that way for a long time. Not how it works at the Supreme Court. So, Here's a couple of other comments on the Kansas decision. Uh, quote, the court practically dared women in this country to go to the ballot box to restore the right to choose, President Biden said by video Wednesday as he signed an executive order aimed at helping Americans across state lines for abortions. And then the president went on to say they don't have a clue, meaning the Supreme Court doesn't have a clue about the power, power of American women. Well, I think there's fair amount to that. And I personally am surprised not so much at the result, but again, the percentage, 59 to 41, that really is quite shocking. Surprising, not shocking, surprising. And it does make me wonder uh, if Republicans are now going to say, well, maybe there should be a few exceptions. Okay, we really think that a 13-year-old girl should be forced to uh, carry to term the, the, the child of the man who raped her violently. That's what they say. The 12-year-old girl who got pregnant through incest, she should be forced to have that child because the government should be able to decide. Not the girl, not the parents, no, the government. We really believe in big, overreaching, big brother government. No, they don't say that, but it's how they act. It's what they do. Okay, let's look at the other story side by side. Backers of lies about elections rise in GOP. Because you may have thought, based on the discussion we've been having in the last, or the diatribe I've been <laughs> engaged in in the last few minutes, that... Uh, uh, it would appear that uh, forces of, of uh, liberty, 
would and those who are opposing the GOP takeover of the American government uh, would be in much better shape today than they were a few days ago with regard to the midterm elections and the uh, uh, 2024 presidential. But not necessarily so, not necessarily so at all. Backers of lies about election rise in GOP. Their goal, to oversee voting in key states. Let me share a couple sentences from that story. Dayline Phoenix. With Tuesday's primary victories in Arizona and Michigan, added to those in Nevada and Pennsylvania. Okay, look at those swing states. Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania. Republicans who have disputed the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election and who could affect, let's be clear, actually could determine, the outcome of the next one are on a path toward winning decisive control over how elections are run in several battleground states. Yeah, they take over the election apparatus. They get the right to choose who won. They decide. A few, a handful of uh, Republican right-wing Trump-backing election-denying officials can decide the presidential election. That's what that first paragraph really implies. Let's read just a couple more sentences. Running in a year in which GOP voters are energized by fierce disapproval of President Biden, these newly minted Republican nominees for Secretary of State and Governor have taken positions that could threaten the nation's traditions of nonpartisan election administration, acceptance of election results, and orderly transfer of power. In other words, they can fix the election. And they have said they will because they think Trump should be president and they would have done and will do next time everything within their power to make that sure that Trump or the Trump-like candidate becomes president, regardless of how the votes come out. Each of those candidates has spread falsehoods about fraud and illegitimate ballots, endorsing the failed effort to override the 2020 results and keep former President Donald Trump in power. Their history of anti-democratic impulses has prompted Democrats, democracy experts, and even some fellow Republicans to question whether these officials would oversee fair elections and certify winners they didn't support. Yeah, because they've said Trump won. Of course we would support someone who didn't win. The takeover of the state election apparatus, the infrastructure of how votes are counted and certified, is crucially important. We haven't paid much attention to it over the course of, I think, the nation's history because we accept it as a given. The votes would be counted. The election results would be certified. The person who would would come into office. There would be an orderly transfer of power from one party to the other if the party that had not been in power was if their nominee were elected. We've just accepted that as a fact of how a fact of life, how democracy works in the United States. But now it doesn't work that way. There's no guarantee it will work that way. And in fact, the Republican Party says, we're going to take over those states. We're going to win because we decide who won. It's really quite frightening. And there is a case coming in front of the Supreme Court in the fall that will actually that actually has the potential to uh, endorse and solidify 
that kind of really, really frightening uh, uh, power grab by Republicans. <clears throat> and that, that Supreme Court case <clears throat> raises the, from North Carolina raises the issue of whether the state courts can be divested of their authority to hear challenges to state law election questions. Now, that sounds perhaps a little wonky, but here's how it works. States decide and have the authority to decide how federal elections are run. States run the elections. The federal government, for the most part, does not run presidential elections. States run presidential elections. And in front of the Supreme Court is the argument <clears throat> and a new theory, <clears throat> excuse me, that state legislatures <clears throat> have total authority to decide who won. Total. And state courts <clears throat> have no authority whatsoever to interfere. So that if you have a Trump-run state legislature and they certify he won, he won. End of story. And there are clearly at least four votes on the Supreme Court already to endorse that theory. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. Is there corn chowder today? There are things they only make certain times of year at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. And with the corn so tall, there might be corn chowder today. There might be blueberry pie. The kitchen garden farm in Sunderland might arrive at Paul and Elizabeth's today with eggplant or zucchini. What'll they make with those? Eating at Paul and Elizabeth's isn't exactly like eating out of your own garden, but it's close. Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, inside Thorns in Northampton. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. 
Whalen Insurance, local people, local service, local insurance, in partnership with Arbella Insurance. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, your message at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, your message at whmp.com, and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP, your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We are joined by Elisa Klein, who is the director of Grow Food Northampton, and Roger Sorkin, who is the founder and director of the Florence-based American Resilience Project. Let's start with Elisa Klein, director of Grow Food Northampton. Something really exciting, really important is happening this weekend in our city. Tell us what. Uh, Good morning. Uh, We are doing a film screening of uh, a film, and you'll hear more about that from the filmmaker Roger Sorkin. Uh, the, The film is called Farm Free or Die, and we're doing it as part of an event that will have a panel. We have elected officials from Congressman McGovern to State Senator Joe Comerford and our mayor, Gina Louise Shera, We'll all be speaking about the importance of a just local food system and uh, regenerative agriculture as a means to um, prevent climate change. And when and where is this happening? At the Florence Civic Center tomorrow night, Friday. We're keeping our fingers crossed that there won't be thunderstorms because it's an outdoor screening on the lawn. Please bring uh, lawn chairs. And if it is raining, we'll move inside to the Florence Civic Center, 7.30 tomorrow evening. It's an all-star cast and a terrific film. This elected who you have as part of this panel, Congressman McGovern, Senator Comerford, uh, Mayor Shara. Uh, why is this issue so galvanizing and so important for us here in Northampton and in the Valley and throughout the, throughout the region, of course, as well? Well, I think we we are so um, rooted in this country in big ag, big agriculture as the way in which we create and get our food. And um, it's just not the best way. We're really, we need to focus on local, small, local farms to, to feed us at the local level and to make sure that everyone has access to fresh local farm food no matter what their income level. Um, But Roger, when he speaks, he can speak a little bit more to the kinds of farming that need to happen at the national level um, that can really help us push back against climate change. Great, let's turn to Roger Sorkin, founder and director of the American Resilience Project based in Florence. The title of your newest film that will be shown tomorrow evening, Farm Free or Die. Tell us about the title. Uh, The title in in this day and age of short attention spans is designed to grab your attention. Um, It did. Any any diehard libertarians out there might be disappointed to to find out this is not a film about libertarianism. Um, But the the metaphor really is that our our farmers here are struggling. Uh, And if they are not free to do the kinds of farming that they need to do to make a living uh, and help feed the rest of us, 
I don't want to start uh, screaming that we're all going to die, uh, but we are going to have problems with our food supply. Um, and of course, that is going to, to create stresses on our society. And so what we're trying to, to make the case for is that we need to remove carbon from the atmosphere in order to avoid catastrophic climate change. Uh, that is, no matter what we do with our energy systems now, uh, we still have a lot of energy, still have a lot of carbon to pull out of the atmosphere. And, and regenerative agriculture is the best method that we have right now at our disposal. Um, never mind geoengineering, never mind any of the R&D that's being done to capture carbon out of the atmosphere. We can do it now with, with regenerative agriculture. Uh, and what this film is designed to do is to convene people around policy issues. Uh, a big one that's coming up, um, and certainly Lisa can talk about this and some of our panelists will talk about it tomorrow night, uh, is the 2023 Farm Bill, which is a huge piece of federal legislation that will allocate uh, funds for, uh, you know, it'll allocate a lot of funds for what Big Ag wants it to allocate for, which is generally what happens. Um, there's, it's a lot of pork, no pun intended, and, uh, you know, you're going up against a lot of uh, Big Ag lobbyists to try to get what you want. And what we, what we need is incentivized carbon removal through regenerative agriculture and really making the case that this is in the interest of big ag. I mean, we all eat food. Uh, they're going to have a harder time getting their products to market if uh, our soil is not healthy enough to do it. Tell us how you tell the story. What is the film itself? Uh, the film is a, a series of interviews and vignettes with farmers across uh, most of, I would say, the breadbasket in some of our big ag producing states. Uh, we went to Nebraska, South Dakota, Iowa, Minnesota, Tennessee, and Maryland, and talked to farmers who, I, I mean, you know, we've got a lot of great farming here in the valley, um, but I mean, you get out there and it's like 10,000 acres of corn, soybeans, and wheat. Uh, and, you know, harvest and repeat, that's, that's what you've got. And these are big businesses and farmers are having trouble staying on the land. Um, increasingly, we're seeing other countries and multinational corporations buying up farmland, so it's a, also a question of national security. So we're, we're telling the story through the eyes of these farmers who are, are struggling to make a living. Um, they're struggling against environmental problems that they've never seen before. Uh, a lot of these folks are, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't necesarily have uh, mar march uh, arm in arm at a climate change demonstration with um, you know, we had conversation with people that didn't make the film saying things like, well, I don't know if climate change is caused by humans or not, because the climate's always been changing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Those to me are, are uh, Koch brother talking points, but they are saying, you know, we're getting hit with weather patterns that we can't predict anymore. We, my, my grandfather and my great grandfather who farmed this land, uh, they had it much easier because they didn't have the pest infestations that we have now, and they didn't have the erosion that we have now. So we have folks in the film who say things like, we're, we're as conservative as you come, and we don't want help from the federal government. But in this case, we need help. We need incentives to do regenerative ag because, you know, they're business people. They're not going to do something if they don't see the money, uh, the return on investment. So uh, they're telling the story through their own hardship, uh, through their own eyes, and we're trying to really mobilize support uh, across red states in particular, uh, ag states, to, to really let their representatives know that their constituents are struggling. And uh, it, it's something that, that's going to affect them and by extension, the rest of us. So uh, Roger Sorkin, uh, uh, founder and director of the American Resilience Project and uh, the creator of this film, Farm Free or Die, were your interviewees large farmers or small farmers? 
Uh, yeah, these are pretty big farms. Um, they are farming on 10,000 acre uh, plots. Um, you know, that's, that's huge compared to what we see here in Pioneer Valley. Uh, so they're they're big industrial farmers. They're um, you know mostly there's corn, wheat, and soybeans. Um, you know they're starting to get into cover cropping, which is a really great way to capture carbon into the soil. And uh, you know one of them says in the film, our commodity system is commodities meaning corn, wheat, and uh, corn, wheat, and soybeans. Uh, that system is not serving us well. We need a new commodity. We want that commodity to be carbon. So is it possible that in this big farm bill that will be voted on by Congress in the coming months, um, that there actually could be an alliance between uh, environmentalists and big farm and big farmers um, that actually transforms the way in which America grows its food. Um, is, is that you're saying is the possibility here? Absolutely. I mean, that's our vision. Um, uh, I would turn it over to Elisa to talk a little bit more about strategy on that. I think uh, there, there are a lot of ways to do that, um, and that's certainly going to be part of the discussion tomorrow night. Monty, I want to play the trailer. Should we do that now or after the break? Well, let's do it now. Okay, let's do it. We've got enough stress. We're worried about bugs. We're worried about the markets. We're worried about whether or not China's buying corn. But we can see the weather. Climate change is absolutely real for farmers because we're living it. I've never seen weather patterns like we've had the last few years. This isn't normal, and what we're seeing is, is the extremes are now the norm. It's enough to make you wonder, why are we doing this? What's the point of banging our heads against the wall? Is there no end in sight to some of the added stresses that we're having to face due to these extreme weather events? A lot of Americans don't realize just how tenuous our food supply is. As a row crop farmer, we grow cash crops about four months out of the year. That leaves a full eight months for plants that can be sequestering carbon from the atmosphere and putting it back into the soil. But if I'm going to go broke, putting carbon back into the soil, I'm probably not going to do it. If I'm going to see some kind of incentive, I'm probably more likely to do it. Elisa Klein, what time is the showing of the film? And what, what time is the convening of this event uh, tomorrow evening? The event is tomorrow at, at uh, 730 on the lawn of Florence Civic Center or inside if it's raining. And uh, we'll start promptly at 730. Okay, now we'll take a quick break. We'll be back more with Elisa Klein, who is the director of Grow Food Northampton, and Roger Sorkin from the American Resilience Project, right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Today could hit triple-digit temperatures, and many towns across Western Mass are opening cooling centers for the public. To get full list of locations, addresses, and times the Northampton and Greenfield centers are open, visit whmp.com or Franklin County now. Remembrance ceremonies for the 77th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki will take place this weekend. Greenfield, Pittsfield, and Springfield 
will join the city of East Hampton in holding ceremonies to commemorate the hundreds of thousands of lives lost in the horrific event, the first and only time nuclear weapons have been used in human history. East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle. In these times, all of a sudden, nuclear threat becoming more real. And that's something newer for younger generations. East Hampton's memorial event will take place Sunday at 7 p.m. on Nashawanic Pond and feature readings, a march by Buddhist monks, and lighting of lanterns to be released on the pond. Discussions are underway in Amherst about what to do with the Merry Maple Tree. The tree has been at the center of the town common for nearly half a century, but with an extensive renovation on the horizon and age of the tree, it may need to be removed. Tree Warden Alan Snow says the Merry Maple is in its decline phase and will most likely be a safety hazard in a few years but many residents want it to stay. The Public Shade Tree Committee conducted a site visit on Tuesday and will hold a public hearing next Tuesday to discuss the Mary Maple's fate. Mostly sunny, hot and humid today, a high of 94 to 98. Variable clouds tonight. Watch out for an evening shower or thunderstorm, an overnight low of 68 to 74. Humid mix of sun and clouds tomorrow, scattered afternoon showers and storms, a high in the low 90s and temperatures around 90 and humid over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Las fiestas patronales de Holyoke comienzan este jueves en la explanada en el cruce de Dwight y Ray Street en la zona centro-sur de Holyoke. Esta es la primera vez que se celebra un evento de este tipo y representa una arraigada tradición puertorriqueña en la que se dedican varios días de fiesta para celebrar al santo patrón de un pueblo o municipalidad de Puerto Rico. Tradicionalmente, en las fiestas patronales se reúne la comunidad para celebrar una procesión religiosa, la cual tuvo lugar en Holyoke el pasado 24 de julio y se dedicó a la Virgen de Guadalupe. Seguido de esto y por varios días, la comunidad se reúne en la plaza central para bailar al ritmo de música en vivo y disfrutar de comida típica, entretenimiento, juegos y actividades diversas que incluyen exhibiciones de autos, venta de artesanías, entre otros. Gracias al esfuerzo conjunto de un comité formado por dueños de negocios locales en Holyoke y el apoyo de Nueva Esperanza, las primeras fiestas patronales de Holyoke se celebran del jueves 4 al domingo 7 de agosto con actividades, juegos, venta de comida y la presentación artística de varios grupos musicales que incluye el cierre a cargo de la agrupación de merengue Grupo Manía desde Puerto Rico. En otras informaciones, el Departamento de Obras Públicas de la ciudad de Holyoke anunció que los trabajos de pavimentación en el área sur de Holyoke continuarán este jueves con el asfaltado de las calles Hamilton desde Canal hasta Main Street, Southeast desde Cabot hasta Crescent Street y South Bridge desde Hamilton hasta Cabot Street. Los trabajos se llevarán a cabo este jueves 4 de agosto a partir de las 6 de la mañana y continuarán durante todo el día. Estas calles estarán cerradas al tráfico vehicular y se prohibirá el estacionamiento en la calle. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Uh... This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Elisa Klein, who is the director of Grow Food Northampton, and Roger Sorkin, the filmmaker of Farm Free or Die and the founder and director of the American Resilience Project based in Florence, Massachusetts. 
Tomorrow, there is a showing of the film and a panel discussion at the Florence Civic Center at 7.30. Free and open to the public. Yes, Elisa? Yes, it is free and open to everyone to come and enjoy an outdoor screening of a film. And there will be a, a discussion by and remarks by Congressman McGovern and State Senator Joe Comerford and Northampton Mayor Gina Luishera. And there will be a showing of the film. How long is the film, Roger? 30 minutes. And after the film, there will be a panel discussion as well for those who wish to attend. Yes, there okay. will there will be a panel. It's going to be moderated by the uh, founding board director and first executive director of Grow Food Northampton, Lily Lombard. And uh, we have three panelists. One is Roger, the filmmaker of Farm Free or Die. Uh, and Senator Comerford will talk about the, the state policy and legislation that is being worked on to incentivize uh, regenerative agriculture and to create um, just local food systems. And the third panelist is Gabby Immerman, who's a founding board member of Grow Food Northampton, who has quite a bit of expertise on alternative agricultural land models. Okay, so I have one question for Roger on the big picture, and then I wanna come back to you, Elisa, on the local aspects of this, if I might. Roger, you began our discussion this morning by talking about this big ag bill. It's billions and billions of dollars. It comes up regularly in Congress. It's going to come up again next year. And at stake, let me put it this way, the stakes this time are enormous, far beyond who is going to get what kind of money or how much money from the federal government. Tell us about that fight that's going to go on in Congress, because that's something obviously we need to discuss with uh, Congressman McGovern. But Set that stage for us. This is a big fight that really matters, and it's not overstating it to say the future of not only agriculture but the environment is really what's at issue. Yeah, so uh, the Farm Bill is, comes up every five years. This would be the 2023 Farm Bill. Uh, you've got all kinds of incentives in there. There is so much money, and you know when people talk about pork in Washington, um, you couldn't really think of a better piece of legislation than the Farm Bill. Um, there's something in it for everybody if they're willing to fight for it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've found over the years we don't hear as much about it in maybe some of the big coastal media outlets, but you can be sure that in, in local papers across the Midwest uh, and agriculture states, you are seeing a lot of coverage of what goes on uh, around, the, around the Farm Bill. So. You know, there's everything from incentives for farmers to buy new equipment to agriculture education programs to subsidies for uh, big ag companies and uh, intellectual property restrictions and the kinds of seeds that they can use. I mean, they've, they've got their lobbyists already focused on this, uh, even though the political oxygen right now is not uh, it's not right. Um, you know, you can be sure that pretty much all the political oxygen is gone now until the election. And, you know, frankly, we don't have an exact call to action right now uh, around the farm bill. Right now, what we're trying to do is generate awareness for how important it is so that when the new Congress is seated in January, then we'll know what's possible. I mean, it's, it's going to matter who gets into the into those chairs uh, in the next Congress, um, because, uh, you know, it, it's, it's all going to it, it, it all comes down to to who has control over over the House and the Senate. And I take uh, so we can't. 
Let me just go back. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to go back to something because we just have a couple minutes left. You talked about crops that could sequester carbon, and that's something that this bill could incentivize. I mean, it could be a game changer for the environment and for agriculture. Just go back to that for a minute for us, please. Yeah, so uh, farmers who are really struggling to get by with very low profit margins. I mean, every year it's, it's, it just seems to become more nerve-wracking for farmers. And this comes up in the film, the stresses that they experience. Um, so farmers are, even if farmers realize, and a lot of them do, that they're on the front lines of climate change, uh, they're on the front, front lines of uh, environmental threat, um, even if they wanted to make changes to the way they farm and plant cover, cover crops, for example, which is a great way to sequester carbon. A lot of them are not going to do it if they don't have the financial incentive to do it. No farmer is going to say, oh, yeah, I'm doing something now so that in three years I can have a return on investment. Um, farmers are worried about the return on investment on a seasonal basis. Um, and so they have to see that incentive now. And the Farm Bill is a really great way to allocate money for farmers, uh, education for farmers to learn about uh, cover cropping and uh, other ways of, of practicing regenerative agriculture. Um, it's a way to establish guidelines for carbon market so that farmers can measure the amounts of carbon that they're, they're sequestering in the soil and actually have a predictable, fairly predictable price on it so they can forecast how much money they're going to make at the end of the season. Uh, so if, if, we can, if we can codify that through law, uh, we can really scale up a lot of these efforts um, so you know, we can transition, not, not just help new farmers get on the land with small uh, CSAs like we see a lot here in, in Western Massachusetts, uh, but take these big 10,000 acre farms um, and transition them to regenerative agriculture. Okay, let me turn from Roger Sorkin in our last minute. Lisa Klein, Director of Grow Food Northampton, tell us, bring us back to the Valley and how this will affect us. Well, I, I just want to say I love this partnership between Grow Food Northampton and the American Resilience Project and Roger's film, Farm Free or Die, because the film focuses so much on the kind of big picture federal level policy around farms and agriculture. Um, whereas here in Northampton, we're lucky to have Grow Food Northampton and all the organic farms and all the small farms that we do that are doing exactly the kinds of things that we're trying to incentivize at the federal level. Um, and one of the things that comes to mind for me in particular is that Grow Food Northampton on our community farm now has research projects to figure out the best ways to sequester the most carbon uh, using agricultural practices. And some of that looks like um, new perennial wheat crops that put down very, very deep roots and um, sequester way more carbon than you know, the short rooted crops that are grown at the big ag level. So um, it's just so interesting to see this interplay between the federal level and our local, uh, local agricultural picture. Farm Free or Die will be shown tomorrow at the Florence Civic Center, 7.30. Outside, if the weather is good. Inside, if it's raining. The filmmaker Roger Sorkin will be there. The panel discussion will follow. Can't wait to see it. Roger Sorkin, founder and director of the American Resilience Project, Elisa Klein, director of Grow Food Northampton. Thank you both so very much for all your work. Thank you for the film. Thank you for this event tomorrow. Congratulations on all your work and good luck on the farm bill, Roger. Thank you, Bill. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is from High Coast. It's called Have H-A-V, which means sea, like the ocean. Where's High Coast? Sweden. What? This is a Swedish whiskey. Have. And this one was in uh, the top whiskeys of the year list. It was number six. Wow. You're right? Swedish whiskey. I mean, I know they have really good food there because of the Swedish chef. Yeah. Naturally. Bork, bork. You have to assemble this whiskey all by yourself without any instructions. That's the <laughs> thing about it. They trap you in this big box and then they give you like just diagrams of what you're supposed to do with it. Yeah, just pictures of grains. It's whiskey from Sweden, from High Coast. And how much is this one? You can have this one for $57.99. I like what you there see and that's a good price too find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at state street five eight six one thousand good phone number right it's the number whalen insurance got when we opened in 1961 it's still our number more than 60 years later if you need an insurance quote or have a claim just call five eight six one thousand we answer the phone ready to help that's our pledge to you until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with our Bella Insurance. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5-1400-1240. WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our usual Thursday Reverend and the Rabbi segment. The Reverends are on assignment, but we have the Rabbi with us, Rabbi, Rabbi Justin David. Thank you so much. You have been on assignment. Okay, you've been on vacation, but so where you been? What you been doing? Are you rest and relaxed? Yeah. Well, vaca- I think vacation is an assignment, meaning I think it's an essential life moment for everyone. Everyone needs time to detach from whatever their work is, however we understand our work, to take some time inward to do nothing uh, and to rediscover parts of oneself. So I'm I'm grateful that I take all of July off. Um, This July, uh, my wife and I, we actually went to England uh, to hike in the Yorkshire Dales. And um, if anyone has watched 
the uh, the TV series All Creatures Great and Small? Or wow, that's where you were. That's where we were. Wow. And I went there because the landscape itself is so magnificently beautiful and um, gentle in a way. Uh, you know, you have these hills that are probably you know slightly lower than uh, the hills of southern Vermont, but they're grassy hills, which means as soon as you start walking up them, you have these incredible panoramic views. And along the way, you're hiking along public footpaths that go through farmers' fields, and you're walking among livestock. And so there's a kind of pastoral calm and gentleness about it, even, even as the hikes themselves can be really demanding. But it was absolutely beautiful. It was a bomb for the soul, much, much needed. How long did you, uh, were you there for? Well, we, we hiked a full three days. We were in England for a little bit over, a uh, little over a week. Um, you know, we were there during the heat. Um, and so we saw, we were actually in London for a couple of days during the heat. And so we saw people, you know, dealing with that up close. Um, and um, so it provided a little bit of everything, you know, a, uh, a retreat from the world, but also kind of a real confrontation with, uh, with what we're all dealing with right now. Could you spend one more minute on what you meant by and the importance of this regenerative get away from your life because it actually enhances and uh, uh, adds to your life? I I'd like your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of this is informed by, you know, my, my adult life of living within Jewish tradition, which you know, once a week has Shabbat, which uh, guides us towards really separating from the things we do during the week, and particularly the work that we do during the week. And it's seen not as a time of um, sloth, uh, although I personally see nothing wrong with sloth. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're my favorite animal. <laughs> yeah, sloth of a bad rep. It's not but, fair. But it's, it's seen as a sacred time because, uh, you know, as Wordsworth famously said, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. There's, there are ways in which the demands of the week, uh, even demands that we love uh, and embrace, um, uh, sap us. They, they, they draw on our capacities in an uneven way and don't give us the time we need to, to think, to feel, to play, uh, to do nothing. All these things that I think are essential to being human. And so Shabbat is about taking a step back and and doing that. Um, sabbatical, interestingly, comes from the Hebrew word uh, Shabbaton, right? Uh, a, a, a time of rest. And that's what vacation is and should be. And, um, you know, whatever, however one defines one's work, whether that's uh, work for employment or work that one does in, in life, uh, I believe we need that time to, uh, to detach from it, to rediscover capacities that we have to um, get in touch with parts of ourselves that might be dormant that really are essential for for living. Rabbi Justin David from Northampton's Congregation B'nai Israel, I'd like to uh, change the topic just a bit and ask you where we are on the Jewish calendar, and it's an important time for a reason that you're going to share with us, so please tell us about that. Yeah, well, it's a very interesting time in the Jewish calendar, and one that uh, I've come to understand very differently over the past few years. You know, we think of the Jewish calendar as punctuated by 
a series of holidays throughout the year. And if you think of a mountain range, right, there's a lot of activity around these holidays and then it drops off and then it comes back up again. And so we have the high holidays and then there's a lull and then there's, you know, a little bit of a rise with Hanukkah and then, you know, minor, you know, minor holiday and then Purim and then another big peak with Passover. And this is how you know, the year goes on. And then you get to the summer and it doesn't seem that there's much. The summer is really uh, a lull. And even in the narrative of the Torah, uh, for much of the, for the first part of the summer, at least, we are reading from the book of Numbers, which in which the people are really in the wilderness. But there's a holiday that um, this year begins Saturday night and goes through Sunday. And it's actually a lamentation holiday. It's a full 20, 24 plus hour fast called Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. And it's understood as the one day of national reckoning in the Jewish calendar. It's the day on which uh, both temples on uh, 586 BCE and then in 70 CE were destroyed. And theologically, it's understood that those great cataclysms happened because of a corruption, a kind of a moral corruption and devolution of the people. And so Tisha B'Av becomes one day when we uh, read the Book of Lamentations, there are certain poems we meditate on, uh, the rhythms around prayer completely disrupted, we fast, and it's kind of like Yom Kippur in a way, except longer because it's hot and it's summer, uh, and we reflect on what it means to be a Jewish person in the world and how we collectively make our lives and the world, you know, will strive to do that better. And, um, and I'll tell you how this has changed for me. I used to think that this was a kind of historically contingent event, right? Had the temples not been destroyed, we wouldn't have had this holiday. But in going back to the sources, um, I saw that in the sources that the rabbis understood it very differently, that this was actually a holiday that, at least according to the rabbis 2000 years ago, was really hardwired into the tradition from the time of the Torah. And that, but also there's something very interesting seasonally that happens around this time of year. Uh, the rabbis noted that kind of in this sort of second, you know, or this the second part of summer, this last part of summer, um, the heat breaks a little bit. It in the in the Middle East it becomes a, a little bit less dry. Um, there might be some late summer dew or late summer rain, and it ushers in a time of renewal. And so this is really a turning point in the natural world from kind of the oppressive heat of summer to the promise of renewal that greets us in the fall. And this day of reckoning becomes, I think, a day of transparent honesty and a time to realistically let in some new hope uh, for the year ahead. So that, that's how I see it. Um, you know, I'm going to fast. I'm going to gather with my community. I'm going to take part in a protest of rabbis at the um, Framingham Women's Jail uh, to uh, against uh, the continued uh, funding of uh, prison construction, uh, something that, by the way, our legislative team fully, fully supports and is leading with in the state house. Um, and that act this day for me will mark a kind of uh, spiritual renewal, uh, the first act of spiritual renewal in anticipation of the new year, about seven weeks from now. And did I understand correctly that the holiday comes from, or this observance comes from initially, the destruction of the temple? That's how it's understood historically. 
but the rabbis understood it differently. The, classically, historically, we observe this day because this is the day on which uh, the two temples were destroyed. But the rabbis in the, in the original sources in the Mishnah understand it as having something preordained, that, that it was something that even affected uh, the people in the time of the Torah. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, one quick, can you do this in 10 seconds? You use the phrase yeah. BCE and then CE, which stand for what? Before, uh, common era and before the common era. Which coincide with, in the Christian tradition, uh, BC and AD, right? Right. Okay. right. It's, the, it's, 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 the, it's the secular way of marking the time uh, as opposed to uh, before Christ and after Christ. Rabbi Justin David, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your insights. Really interesting. Really appreciate you being with us every week. And welcome home. My pleasure. See you next week. Thank you. How it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking. Everybody knows. In the mood for takeout? Want to find yoga classes, music lessons, or art supplies nearby? Save 30% on full-value gift certificates to dozens of local businesses and services from Springfield to Brattleboro and everywhere in between. Whether it's a quick bite for lunch, something nice for a special occasion, or just an excuse for some good old retail therapy, save 30% on full-value gift certificates at the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. How long and how hard would you work to own your own home? At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, future homeowners contribute dozens of hours to build a home for their family, but they need your help. Thousands of community supporters have participated in this work since 1989. They create a partnership with a future homeowner and Habitat to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Grab a hammer, lend a hand, build a better world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. pvhabitat.org. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.